0: And if you look at the data around alcohol consumption in general, Americans consume on average of, I think the number is 2.5 gallons of ethanol per year. And that number has stayed incredibly steady for 40 or 50 years. Consumer habits are shifting, but alcohol consumption is not going away. I don't think it will out. Our hope is that consumers are making more responsible choices and that we're engaging with a whole new group of consumers who otherwise wouldn't be coming into our spaces and wouldn't be coming into the on-premise and who don't drink for a variety of reasons. And whatever that is, here's a product that works for them in a social occasion and gives them some of that social buzz, if you will, that people look for in alcohol, but in a different option, in an option in cannabis that works better inside of their lifestyle. And I think back to your earlier point about what does this look like in the on-premise and the mixing of alcohol and cannabis, I think this is where low dose is really important. This is where, you know, those three to five milligram products are a great option to have in the on-premise. And in Minnesota, that's what you'll see is continuing to be widely available. So we've capped it at five milligrams, and that's considered the low dose market that you can buy at the grocery store that you can have at the bar and restaurant. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Jason Dayton, and I'm one of the co-founders of the Minneapolis Cider Company, and we also produce the cannabis beverage brand Trail Magic up here in Minnesota. We got into the beverage business back in 2015. Our original cider company, Lionheart Cider, was actually my senior project with one of my partners at our undergraduate school at the University of Minnesota. We had fallen in love with cider in Europe, came back, started dating my wife, whose father was born and raised in Southwest England. Learned how to make cider as a teenager on the farm and been homebrewing his entire life. Like many future brewery owners and beverage business owners, it's a hobby that got wild out of hand. And several years later, you end up with a production facility and a tap room. And so we launched our initial business, Lionheart, as a contract manufactured brand in 2015, opened up our tap room here in Minneapolis in 2019, right ahead of the pandemic, and operated that business for a few years. And then when the laws changed, Um, In 2021 in Minnesota, we saw the opportunity pretty similar to everyone else and decided to get into the cannabis beverage space with the launch of Trail Magic. My background prior to that, as we were starting up the cider company, I wasn't necessarily working on it full time. I was at General Mills for a period of time. I was at Target. I was also at packaging business, Gamer Packaging. We sold into the cannabis industry. I had been to MJ BizCon prior, so I had a connection into what was going on in cannabis and the early days of Tosa and Source and these different cannabis beverage companies that were popping up in in these early rec markets. So we found out about the law change pretty similar to how most people in Minnesota did in most of the broader market news articles in July. I was sitting at the cabin over the 4th of July reading this initial article about how the law changed and another local brewery was going to be launching a cannabis beverage product. What we basically did at that point was looked at that, realized as a cider company, and specifically a fruit company is the way we think about ourselves, we could get into the space and we could make a product that tastes great and is a good addition to the market. I had a bit of experience in the cannabis industry. I had some initial contacts. We were able to get an emulsion put together pretty quickly, launch a brand, and we ended up launching the brand in 19 days. So July 29th, we launched. We were the first brand in Minnesota to start selling. And we've been going ever since then. We had about three weeks in the market where we were the only distributed Minnesota cannabis beverage brand in early August, which was fantastic. That was a ton of fun and allowed us to really spread the message and tell people about cannabis beverage for the first time. As the market continued to evolve, more and more breweries have gotten into space. National players have come into Minnesota. And the result of it really has been a thriving cannabis beverage market in Minnesota that is unlike anywhere else in the country. And I don't think if anybody had cannabis bingo cards in 2022, they would have picked Minnesota as the unexpected surprise in a way to transform the cannabis beverage industry. But here we are.
1: Yeah, it's certainly very fascinating. I think from the outside looking in, I remember when that news hit that Minnesota had accidentally is maybe the choice of words all you use, because <laughs> I don't think they really realized it.
0: I think it depends who you talk to. Sure, I don't know that I give sure. them credit for saying it was totally accidental.
1: It depends on what side. Maybe there was the accidental oversight of the people who were supposed to actually be reviewing the legislation, and maybe it was intentional by people who know that they could throw some things in and be creative with the language and get the law to pass in a way that is conducive for opening up this type of market. But nonetheless, it's here, and you guys highlighted for us have really pave the way. That's remarkable how short of a time frame you were able to go from like idea to actually launching a physical product into the marketplace. But just for the listener's sake to understand a couple episodes ago, I did have a Minnesota cannabis attorney, Jason Trassic on the podcast. I just wanted to mention people should go listen to that more. I guess the legal overview, although I definitely want to pick your brain because you're obviously on the actual operator retailer side. In addition, I think when I was talking to Jason, other Jason originally, Minnesota was talking about this whole recreational legislation and y'all are currently in session. We're currently in session, Minnesota to Texas. And I just saw this morning it has passed the house for recreation. And so there's a couple of things I want to dive into with you. Obviously, how does that piece of legislation impact what you're able to do? But let's maybe start back at just understanding the current landscape. For me, I just think it's so crazy to understand. Maybe you don't have to be explicit, but just you're one of like how many brands are now doing this in Minnesota and what was the go-to-market strategy? Like, did you just put it in your cidery? Did you distribute it to other points of sale? Did people like know about this? Was it a, Hey, I'm coming in to get a cider and Oh, like then your salespeople are like, Oh, by the way, maybe try this THC beverage instead. Like, How did people know to even come start to purchase these beverages from you. The way that the law, and maybe you can speak to the law a little bit too, the law didn't explicitly say beverages. That's just what I think a big interpretation of it happened to become. So I'm just curious like how that ended up getting connected for now opening up this whole market. I just keep seeing so many lists of breweries and cideries and alcohol places are now selling low dose THC, legal cannabis beverages.
0: Absolutely. I think what's unique about Minnesota And the way cannabis beverage came to be in Minnesota is that we're leveraging the state's existing craft beverage manufacturing capacity, which exists across the country. There's 10,000 breweries across the country. And you asked how many brands are available in Minnesota. And the answer is, I really don't know at this point. I've lost count. And part of that is because you have the national players coming into the market. You have Can, Wonder, a variety of national players, Cantrip that a lot of your listeners will be familiar with. But you also have about a quarter that I last heard of local Minnesota breweries producing these products, be that just for consumption in their taproom or actual distribution out into the market. And in Minnesota, the way the law is written is we have a pretty open market for where to sell these products. They're required to be 21 plus. So it is an adult use product and they're, they cannot be sold in a liquor store right now. And the way that the reason that it works in Minnesota. You will see them occasionally pop up here and there. But in Minnesota liquor stores, we don't have beer and wine and sales and grocery. So the liquor store law has a list of products that are allowed to be sold. And right now, cannabis products or hemp drive products are not on that list. Part of House File 100 will hopefully add those products to the liquor store. Those are the stores where people are used to checking an ID and selling an adult beverage. We think they belong in those stores. Currently, you can find these products mostly in co-ops, hemp shops, grocery stores. You will see them in some on-premise locations like salons or spas, things like that. But then also you're seeing it in traditional bars and restaurants and traditional on-premise. And that has really fundamentally transformed who is consuming cannabis beverages in the way that now these products are where consumers who prior to this point had no exposure to a cannabis product, maybe they had a CBD beverage, maybe they had been to another state, but really didn't have a whole lot of exposure to it, now it's in their grocery store. Now it's in their co-op. It's right next to LaCroix. It is fitting into the spots that in many other states we see traditional alcohol or non-alcoholic products and being available and being just available to consumers. And that has led to significantly more trial and a lot of folks discovering that these are products that can fit really well Into their lifestyle, depending on what they're looking for, whether they're looking to cut back on alcohol, they're looking for something with lower calories, they're looking specifically for cannabis infused products, but putting them within easy reach of consumers so they don't have to go into a dispensary, they don't have to go to a place that they're otherwise not otherwise going to makes it an easier pickup for folks.
1: No, that makes sense, and obviously too, like wanting it to go towards more of the point of sale, like where people are buying their adult use beverages, makes sense. It just is, I guess, a little contradictory. We were talking before we were recording just about Texas, obviously being in a similar, not quite a full robust medical program, looking towards hopefully getting adult use. All the way. We'll give you guys credit. Y'all are way more far advanced in that journey than Texas is. But trying to figure out where and who regulates and what these products. Ultimately, are guided by or protected by like where I'm trying to pay attention to what Minnesota is deciding. And so, let me back up and ask: One, you're mentioning some of these national cannabis beverages. So I'll use Can, a really recognizable, really dominated player in the industry. I had them on the podcast. Gosh, this would have been like a year plus, almost maybe even two years ago. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts or understandings on this because I remember when I had interviewed them asking explicitly why, because if they're such low THC, they didn't pursue the hemp route. And so knowing that their answer at the time was, well, because we want to be in the regulated marijuana market, I, they, we didn't really get to of the details of like a strategy of like, why? Because in my opinion, it's like, well, wow, just use hemp derived and then you can be everywhere. Like That seems like a way right. better place. So from the legalization of this I'm going to call it a loop for the legislation. It is on the hemp side, right? So this allowed for hemp derived low dose or like, what is the source of this? Is it hemp derived nine, or is this actual extracted plant matter? Is the law specific? I'm curious just to understand that detail a little bit more. And maybe if you know too about how players like can, does that mean they're then bringing in their regulated marijuana products? or they're actually manufacturing in the state and then those products might be even hemp derived if that's the case of what the law says.
0: So in Minnesota, all of the products that you're seeing, all of the beverages that are available right now are hemp-derived products. They have to be. We have a medical program in Minnesota, and as we talked about a little bit before the recording, the state is working on passing adult-use cannabis. That hasn't happened yet. So at this point, all of the products are hemp-derived. And to use CAN as an example, I think you've seen these national cannabis brands realize the opportunity That's available from everything we just talked about, the accessibility of hemp drive products to continue to grow their brands. And so they're producing that product locally here in Minnesota, but I think they're producing the majority of their hemp product, I'd imagine, in Minnesota and selling it across state lines. One of the things that you're allowed to do with the hemp drive market is you don't have to go into each individual state and set up brand new manufacturing. For anybody that knows the initial basics of CPG manufacturing, we are in a business of scale. And it is very challenging to operate these businesses at a micro scale. You need to be able to purchase inventory, labels, cans, ingredients at bulk for this to be able to work at prices that the average consumer is willing to tolerate and is going to fit in their lifestyle. Because The consumers in Minnesota, they're not comparing this to an adult use cannabis market. They're comparing this to kombucha, alcohol, mm-hmm. functional beverages. And so if you have a product that came in and it's wildly outside of prices that consumers are used to seeing on the shelf, they're not going to pick that product in volume. We talk a lot about, we price our products in a way that somebody will share it. It is a social beverage. And if you have a four pack of this, of trail magic in the fridge, when your friend comes over in the evening and you say, grab anything from the fridge, we want you to be okay with them grabbing a trail magic. If it's a $40 four pack, You're not going to be thrilled with your friend grabbing a a $10 can out of the fridge. And so that's really the way that we've thought about it. And the hemp drive market enables you to do that. That's just not something that's possible in the regulated market because of the size of the manufacturing and all of the regulatory burdens that come with the adult use market.
1: Let me twist the conversation into marketing a little bit. I'm curious, just based on kind of the conversations that we're having here in Texas around hemp-derived delta Knot, and really even just national conversations. I think yes to your observation and point two, using can as the example. Maybe their temperature has changed since I talked. They're realizing like, oh shit, we're leaving money on the table. I don't have to go set up manufacturing. I can have one point, and I can have a product that's essentially distributed nationwide. Just by some clever reallocating or resourcing your main ingredient, right? But getting into the marketing of it, I'm curious: how is the conversation going? Are people asking for COAs? Are they weary of it being hemp-derived delta nine? Do y'all work very closely with, I guess, like the local CBD dispensary market, or is it is it very like independent? Like I'm sure you're selling, and maybe not explicitly you, but I'm sure people are selling these beverages. Yes, in these cannabis hemp dispensaries, but also if I can find it in a grocery store, if I can find it at a boutique, if I can find it with a brewery, my, I'm going with my friends for a Friday night and I don't drink, but they do. And we're going to go to this point that offers these options. I'm just curious, like how how is that being communicated to consumers in terms of what they're drinking? Do they know what they're drinking? Is the conversation like this is cannabis light or THC light, or do they just not care? Because everybody just caught on essentially legal cannabis and you can drink it and it's everywhere. And so it's just, it's because it's everywhere. Maybe it's just even more adopted. I just find that we're having a lot more conversations in Austin where one, because of Delta eights proliferation, honest to God, I have more customers come in now that we have hemp drive D nine. And they're like, I don't want D nine. I prefer D eight because they don't know that D nine is the main cannabinoid in marijuana. And so they haven't associated that effect yet. And it's a little bit of an education for us to try to have those conversations with them and obviously trying products. So I'm curious, can you sample your products with consumers? Just let's start walking into some of the marketing and the education around what this product actually is for these consumers to be ultimately consuming it.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to remember in the cannabis industry, we live in a very well-educated bubble. And core legacy cannabis consumers or even core hemp consumers live in that bubble with us and they understand the nuances between d8 and d9 and other cannabinoids and hemp derived versus marijuana derived and those core consumers do ask some of those questions the vast and in the hemp space we do sell a lot, quite a few products in the hemp dispensaries but the vast majority of consumers in Minnesota are brand new to the category they may have smoked in the past they may have used cannabis occasionally They might know the difference between CBD and THC, and that's where it probably ends. Right, D eight, D nine, whether that's hemp drived or marijuana. The frankly, the differences even between hemp and marijuana plants. The understanding that that is still a cannabis plant, and it's a technical distinction. Consumers really aren't there, and so that really comes the burden on businesses now is to educate consumers, to bring them along in these conversations, to talk about the agriculture side of this business, where these products are coming from, to talk about the focus on quality to look for in certain brands. Cannabis runs the runs into the issue that we have more bad actors in the cannabis industry than there are in industries like alcohol. You don't hear about people being poisoned from their local craft brewery. It's just not something that's a concern. People don't have to worry about when they walk into a liquor store if that 5% beer actually is 5% or if it's 20%. And so that's new in cannabis. And so we've We spend a lot of time educating consumers, educating retailers, working with distributors, telling folks to ask for the COA, to dig into the companies that you're buying the products from, to ask those questions. And part of the advantage that we have in Minnesota in a much more open marketplace, we have a lot more places to do that. We're not limited to doing that just in the dispensaries. We can do that at pastings at liquor stores. We can have this product at beer festivals. We host, we sell this product on premise at the taproom here. And we have these conversations day in and day out with consumers. And slowly over time, we're building that education base. I think there's a question that the cannabis community has to answer though, in that, where is this or consumer going to be at the end of the day? And there's a bunch of assumptions in there, you know, assume federal legalization, assume cannabis is pretty widespread among the Broader general population, how are they going to be consuming? Is it going to be smoking? Is it going to be vapes? Is it going to be um, edibles? Is it going to be beverages? Because I think the consumer expectations for what they want to know about those products and what the experience is different for each one of those categories. What we talk about a lot in our beverages and low dose specifically is we're about the experience and the occasion of the beverage. We're not about the dosage. Nobody wakes up in the morning in the alcohol industry and says, I need 10 mLs of ethanol today. That's my dosage. It's like like, no, I'm going to have a cocktail, maybe at dinner, maybe I'm going to have a beer out on the golf course. And it's about the occasion in which that beverage fits and what's the social occasion that you're having it. And that's how we think about our products. That's not a product for everybody. There are high dose consumers that are, you know, that's clearly evident by the top selling products in rec markets being 100 milligram shots, for example. That's just not the consumer we're, servicing and it's not the consumer we're necessarily seeing buy the most product in Minnesota. Those consumers exist and I think our products are a great option for them and fit into that social lifestyle when they're out at a bar. But those folks are going to go to the dispensaries when adult use opens up. They're going to purchase the 100 milligram shots if that's something that's available because they're just looking for a very different type of use for cannabis than what low-dose products are offering.
1: No, that makes sense. And obviously too, I think the way that the market is trending, we're, there's just so much untapped potential for who these consumers are. And it's really just trying to understand it's like you said, it's not to slide the people who want to go for the hundred milligram shot. And I think even Jason Trassic had brought up the way that y'all's language is written. It's like, Per serving, and so people can be egregious with putting larger doses in a can, and just saying there's ten servings in this can, mm-hmm. and you know it's up to you, the consumer, to drink less of it or to drink the whole thing if you want all that milligrams of cannabis. But going back into a little bit of what we were talking about before we hit record, and and you've been touching on it here and there, it's really fascinating and really confusing to me how we are selling it alongside liquor. I'm not the police, right? I'm not the regulator. I have, however, been in situations on both sides. One where my friends want to drink. I don't. I would love for the menu to have something for me. But then in the same vein, I just recently coming off of 420, went to a consumption dinner. Actually, I went to two consumption dinners in Austin, Texas. Amazing. All with hemp derived Delta nine. That's just so fun. And one dinner had alcohol at it. They had admitted to us they didn't want to put as much alcohol into them. It was like a nine course menu They're like, we don't want a cocktail for every course. That's too much because we're infusing the food with cannabis. But then the second consumption dinner I went to, they were like, we don't believe in cannabis and alcohol co-mingling. And maybe it's because we don't have enough trust with the consumer to make decisions that will set them up for success when crossfaded or whatever the situation may be. So I'm curious how the state of Minnesota works with you guys to regulate this. Between the alcohol commission. I know in Texas it's the TABC, I'm, I forget what the acronym is, the Texas Alcohol and Bar Commission, maybe is, is something to that effect. But it, it seems like they're aware you're selling it in these alcohol points of sale. How do you regulate a consumer? You can know when someone's been overserved alcohol. How do you know when someone's been overserved cannabis? Like, how do you have those conversations? How do you train your staff? How do you work with these regulators to say, yes, we can sell them alongside each other? Because I think. My observation is, and maybe it's a made up observation because of the fear of the unknown and because we aren't as advanced in Texas on this topic, we just don't, we don't have anybody who's been made the example of. And so it takes Mm -hmm. really bold brands to step into that and say, Hey, I am a brewery and I am also going to sell a THC beverage. I see it certainly a couple bars here and there, but like I shared before we were recording, A lot of our breweries, while it might seem fun to do a collab or a pop-up with us as a cannabis brand, they're not interested in an ongoing thing. And part of that comes into the licensing. And so for us in Texas, you have to, which is not a lot, you have to go get a license to say that you can retail sell it. It's about $300 and you renew every year, but legally for these entities, which the other half of that is in Texas, nobody's really regulating. So it's again, going back to that risk of the business owner, the bar owner, the brewery owner to say, well, someone might come and slap me on the wrist. Someone might come and take my license away. So how much do I want to dip my toe in that deep end? And so knowing that it's moved so fast in Minnesota and it's been very heavy influenced by the actual breweries and cideries because of your point of just, they have the infrastructure. It's easy to just flip things and maybe we're condensing. I'm sure it's a much more complex thing between cleaning and just sourcing all these different ingredients and different labels, but it makes sense that you could just turn on this other product. But it just, to me, I don't know if cannabis has really identified, I guess, sum so it back up. I don't know if cannabis has really identified do we want to be where alcohol is? Do we want to be separate? Are we regulating it and licensing it the same way? Are there two different entities? I'm just curious from your experience being an actual operator of a tap room that has a liquor license, what it's been like working with the state if they're present or not present at all?
0: Well, there's two parts to this. I think there's the regulatory side and then there's the consumer experience. On the regulatory side, up until this point, there hasn't been any regulation regarding the commingling of alcohol and cannabis beverages in Minnesota. That's likely to come from House File 100 and the adult use bill if that passes. For fear of getting ahead of myself, that bill could still change before it's finalized. But the conversations they're having is you can't knowingly serve cannabis to someone who had alcohol within the last five hours. How do you enforce that when people are going to multiple locations? That becomes a much bigger question, but it at least prevents you from serving somebody a alcohol drink and then a cannabis drink one right after another. Now on to the consumer use and the occasion. To your point, when you go out and you don't want to drink, thankfully, we live in a world now where there are way more options. And it's becoming much more acceptable for folks to choose choices other than alcohol for a variety of reasons, right? And there are really amazing products from brands like Athletic or other non-alcoholic cocktail brands. There are amazing NA products. And cannabis fits in really well in that space. And what we see here in the tap room, you'll walk up to a table and somebody might have a Trail Magic, another person have a glass of wine, somebody might have a cocktail, and the fourth person might have a cider. And it's no different than going out to a bar or any other occasion where consumers are just making different choices. And we're seeing the consumption occasion in the on-premise to be almost identical to any other non-alcoholic beverage or even an alcoholic beverage. Consumers are choosing this as part of their social occasion. And so it doesn't feel right to us to say that, no, you can't have cannabis in the same location as we're serving alcohol. And I think Minnesota is a great example where we've been doing this for nearly eight months and there hasn't been a serious incident that I'm aware of. We've operated our tap room, selling the products on-premise since we launched them and we haven't had any issues with it. We typically see most consumers choosing one or the other, alcohol or cannabis. We don't see a lot of switching back and forth, but we also haven't had any issues with overconsumption or consumers getting out of hand or other problems. Last fall, we... Opened and operated a four day pop up tap room that was cannabis only. We, Trail magic tap room. We took over an old brewery space. We brought in 36 different products from 12 different Minnesota brands and operated a cannabis specific tap room. We didn't have any alcohol products at that space, but the learnings that we took away from that was that the occasion in which people are consuming these cannabis beverages for the most part is nearly identical. Had you walked into that building and not known the products that we were selling, you have no idea that it wasn't any other brewery tap room anywhere in the country.
1: no you made a really interesting point that I just wanted to recirculate obviously when it comes to alcohol we can trust consumers to go into a bar and pick a low alcohol content spritz or something. Maybe you can tell I'm not an alcohol consumer. I'm like, what are these names for these beverages? But like a beer, right? It's low alcohol compared to a tequila or a whiskey. And even just last night I was at a party and someone was like, can't handle whiskey. The other person was like, well, I can't handle tequila. And so you see the conflict already play out in alcohol. And obviously I think we can all agree that alcohol has way worse implications than overdosing on cannabis. And so it's again, not that I'm trying to be the bad cop in this conversation. I'm really just trying to, I guess, learn because I think the sentiment here in our state is still so much we don't know. And because nobody's willing to take that risk. And I think for us as a brand, we would be more on the I have a beverage. I want to put my beverage in a bar. I don't own the bar, right? I don't own the brewery. I don't own the distillery that I'm coming in and saying, I'm making the decision. Hey, I want to add this product into my brand. I'm kind of having to go. T- take a opportunity to go pitch my product to someone to say, Hey, let's do something with cannabis in your domain. And they're kind of like, I don't really want to lose my license. Is that legal? I don't know. And so that's just where I've been super fascinated to watch how well your state has embraced it. And maybe it's a little bit of looking the other way, but I think that's what's happening in every state. I mean, even here in Texas, we have a lot of anti, uh, some of these psychoactive minor language around Delta eight and Delta nine, but we too have had Delta eight in the marketplace for the last two and a half, three years. And Yes, there's negative stories, but it's at the same time, not at the scale of making something illegal or illicit, right? It's like, okay, look, we have it. Let's just, let's learn from it. Let's better regulate it moving forward. Let's not remove it from the marketplace. But going into your specific products, we, I saw that y'all have four SKUs and just going off of the story you shared as well of doing this mock pop-up with just cannabis beverages, knowing your state is very heavy with having a lot of access to different breweries and microbreweries and just different brands. Do you see, I guess, like cannabis overtaking the alcohol market? Is the alcohol market, Mm -hmm. and maybe you can just speak from your perspective, like operating a site, are you selling more cannabis than alcohol? Is that going to take over? Are we seeing a trend where people are not wanting to consume alcohol? So maybe that part is not so much as a concern. I'm just trying to get a pulse again, I think, Nationally, it is a trend that people are not drinking alcohol as much, or they're sort of looking for non-alcoholic options, or they're looking for health benefits, adaptogenics, mushrooms, blah, 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 healthy things. But it's, it's interesting to see so many breweries be like, let's take advantage of this. And I'm just wondering, is it take advantage because that's a whole new market that you're now supplementing, or is that a whole new market that's going to take over who consumers Or maybe the answer is it's, there's still so many people who are not alcohol consumers who it makes sense to go support cannabis, non-alcoholic beverages, but just obviously from your perspective, sitting in the driver's seat, being in this game for the last eight months at a year's prior running your cidery. I'm just curious to kind of the demographic of your customers shifting with cannabis being introduced, like that would be interesting.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that folks will often cite is 40% of millennials don't drink, 40% of Gen Zers don't drink. The answer is 40% of boomers don't drink, 40% of Gen Xers don't drink. The amount of consumers in America that don't consume alcohol has been relatively consistent for the last 50 years. And if you look at the data around alcohol consumption in general, Americans consume on average of, I think the number is 2.5 gallons of ethanol per year. And that number has stayed incredibly steady for 40 or 50 years. Consumer habits are shifting, but alcohol consumption is not going away. I don't think it will. Our hope is that consumers are making more responsible choices and that we're engaging with a whole new group of consumers who otherwise wouldn't be coming into our spaces and wouldn't be coming into the on-premise and who don't drink for a variety of reasons and whatever that is, here's a product that works for them in a social occasion and gives them some of that social buzz, if you will, that people look for in alcohol, but in a different option, in an option in cannabis that works better inside of their lifestyle. And I think back to your earlier point about What does this look like in the on-premise and the mixing of alcohol and cannabis? I think this is where low dose is really important. This is where, you know, those three to five milligram products are a great option to have in the on-premise. And in Minnesota, that's what you'll see is continuing to be widely available. So we've capped it at five milligrams and that's considered the low dose market that you can buy at the grocery store that you can have at the bar and restaurant. And that's because we do have a lot of consumers who are brand new to cannabis who don't understand what the product's going to do to them, who don't have the whiskey and tequila analogy. And that's going to just take time for consumers to build that awareness. And I think that's where low-dose beverages fit really well. Is It gets people into cannabis, it gets them an opportunity to experience it. But at three to five milligrams, um, nobody's going to have a terrible experience from that. It's a very safe consumption occasion for the first time using it. And that's why we also think those high-dose beverages, there's nothing wrong with them, and there's definitely a consumer for that. Those products belong in the dispensary where it's a more controlled channel and where you have educated bud tenders who can talk to consumers about the product and the effects of it.
1: So specifically like zeroing in on your products, I'm really curious to understand. And I think I'll set it up by the whole conversation around dosing is so comical to me, you know, where states get these numbers and these caps and it's, you can only sell up to this amount of milligrams and obviously then too, kind of like your, one of the original points, we as an industry know a lot, but the regular consumer doesn't speak in that same language. So yes, I'm not waking up necessarily and saying, I want this much alcohol, but for some reason I do talk about, Oh, well, five milligrams is really great for me. You know, on a Saturday morning, maybe one to two milligrams, if it's a weekday morning, definitely 10 to 20 milligrams before I'm going to bed. But I'm, I can understand, which is an interesting side conversation that I'm trying to personally explore, like micro dosing, but like between one milligram to two milligram, like what really is that variation? But three milligrams, like why not go for the two and a half, five? Cause I think those are standard numbers that have been shared in the industry and adopted. What's the difference between introducing a three milligram and a five milligram from your perspective is three, the magic number. Certainly you did some testing of formulations. Maybe you've evolved over the last eight months to sort of reformulate and make sure it's like the right dose, but I'm curious, in your words, what is your intention between three and five? Is there really that much of a difference for that end consumer? And maybe we'll start with like, why three milligrams? Where did that number come from?
0: The three milligrams came from looking at some of the other players in the market who are in an eight ounce can with two milligrams. And so similar concentrations in the liquid, but we're in a 12 ounce can. That's sort of where that number came from. And also when we launched in Minnesota, there weren't any five milligram products in the market day one almost every brand launched with the three milligrams initially. There was a hesitation that five milligrams is the cap. Do you want to jump straight to five? And I think we found out pretty quickly that there's a large consumer preference for that five milligram dose. That's a pretty good spot to be for a lot of consumers. For me personally, even as somebody who is a pretty regular cannabis user, especially in the beverage side now, I really enjoy the threes and it's about sessionability. It's about occasion, right? It's, well, why don't I have... Why isn't every drink a cocktail for me? It's, well, because if I'm going to have a cocktail, I'm going to have one of them. And some days I am out in the backyard mowing the lawn and I want to have a peel. And that's where the three milligram fit in really well. And it goes back to this idea of occasion for the beverage and how does the beverage fit into your life and that social occasion and the but frankly, just the pleasure of enjoying the drink rather than thinking primarily about the dosage. And I think that's what's really interesting about cannabis is we have these two sides of the industry. We have the just purely recreational enjoyment. It's THC for THC's sake and for the effect of it as a part of your social component. And then there's also the wellness and the health and wellness side of it where you know that dosage is very specific because it has a certain effect on you individually that makes your life better. And as a brand, we've chosen to focus primarily on the social aspect of the beverages, just because we think there are brands who are better positioned to focus on wellness and who are going to be able to provide more curated products for consumers who are really looking for that wellness component. I mean, going back to the conversation we had a little bit about beverages and shipping, for example, we do sell our products online. There was an e-commerce option and it's incredibly expensive to ship a 12 ounce can of liquid if your intent is this as a wellness product that somebody's consuming every day, a tincture is a much more effective method for that than a than 12-ounce can of liquid.
1: Yes, it's an interesting just evolution. There's so many different consumers out there and you're painting a really great picture of just the accuracy. One of new consumers hitting the market who are unfamiliar, who are looking for something a little bit maybe more akin to how they would be engaging with low strength alcohol products. And so they're looking for an alternative to that, but obviously there are the consumers who want the higher strength. So a couple of kind of like final thoughts as we like get into some of the last questions around this upcoming legislation that may or may not impact what you do. Do you find there's a preference between your customers between the three and five? Like has one now surpassed the other? I'm just so curious from a, again, just a a regular consumer's perspective. Three to five is really like negligible. Like I can't tell the difference between three and five necessarily, right? Um, so curious if one has over oversold the other. And then two, in terms of I guess what are people Like frequency, are they drinking one beverage and then they feel that's good? Are they having two, especially in a tap room setting where you're kind of like watching the sales happen? Are you finding people are purchasing multiple for one individual? Are there any caps? There's a cap on how much THC can legally be in it. Is there a cap on how many beverages you can sell to that person? Like a cap that an individual can be consuming or in possession of.
0: Well, consumers definitely tell us that there's a difference between three and five and folks do have a strong preference to it. Uh, I tend to enjoy our our three milligrams more. And I, for me individually, I can notice the difference between that's three and five milligrams. The challenge for us is we don't have the same flavors in both dosages. So we have our half and half, our Arnie Palmer, which is our best seller product by far. It's a five milligram. It tastes absolutely, I think it's it's one of the favorite drinks I've ever had. And so how much of the sales volume there is being driven by the milligram dosage versus the flavor component? I don't know. And we don't have that data. Our three milligrams do perform really well, though, and we're, we see a lot of consumers who choose those products over the five milligrams. And so We are seeing consumers sort of self-select into which ones they're looking for. As far as service here in the tap room, we typically see one to two is pretty common, pretty rare that somebody will order a third one. And I think that's just common in cannabis beverages. Unlike alcohol, where folks tend to accelerate throughout the night in the amount of consumption, cannabis beverages, people tend to slow down right? So that first one, you might drink fairly quickly. That second one, you're going to drink a lot slower. And that just seems to be the natural tendency of most consumers that we've seen in this space. We don't have a hard limit on beverages in the tap room, but we look for the same types of issues that we would have with overservice of alcohol. And we take that extremely seriously and making sure that consumers are not over-consuming, that we're keeping an eye on folks. And one of the things that you get in a low-dose beverage is that it's a fairly quick onset. I mean, we're seven to 15 minutes. Consumers have that effect. And so we have, well, it's not as perfect as alcohol because cannabis affects consumers more individually. We do have some standards around what we're looking for to making sure that we're not over-serving anybody. And we haven't had any issues with it so far.
1: Yeah, it's certainly a newer topic of education i had someone on probably a year ago maybe at this point from vegas and coming from like the hospitality space and obviously vegas being a very big hub both for cannabis and just tourism you're getting a lot of people who are coming in they're wanting to have a good time and so she was just discussing how especially in that environment where it's so much traffic turnover how do you train your staff to identify certain things that maybe there's some similarities to alcohol, but also some very specific nuances to cannabis that are not necessarily as documented or as discussed as an industry. So I think we're all individually having to set some standards up as things start to roll out. And so I was just, yeah, really curious from your experience, just again, being on the front lines of that conversation, kind of getting into some of the final stuff. The thought I have is really around volume in terms of Do you see, and maybe the answer is no, and I've seen it in other states, right? But it's just an interesting idea. You can buy, I guess, larger growlers of beer. Will you ever see a larger volume of a cannabis beverage in your opinion? Is that something that has been discussed in your state in terms of, I guess, the way the dosing works, or is that something that maybe will be unlocked as some of this legislation comes down. I just am curious to see kind of like the progression of how, because like right now, everything is just very reliant upon cans. It's a can beverage, mm-hmm. it's takeaway, which is convenient for situations, but going to your point of bringing something home, wanting to be able to have access to it more in volume, price breaks for the consumer. Is that something that has been discussed? Like, hey, let's make a super size can. Let's make a super growler of this. Are people doing that? Is that something that customers are asking for? Or is that not really like even a topic of concern right now?
0: There's definitely a lot of conversation around draft. And is that something that can be an option in the cannabis industry? There are a couple of brands in Texas that sell draft Delta 9 seltzers. Problem that we have with that with the industry at its current stage is that a pint is never a pint when you go out to a bar. It's always different. And so if we're really focused on educating consumers about the dosage and the amount that they're having, I think precision in that dose is really important. So we're okay with that being in a defined amount in a 12-ounce can, and a 16-ounce can. Really where it's going to come down to is how do you define servings and dosage limits in Minnesota? So like we talked about earlier in the podcast, there are brands in Minnesota selling a 50 milligram 12-ounce can. And on the side of the label, there are hash marks every quarter of an inch that say this is one serving. And they put a resealable lid on it, but it's not practical. Nobody's gonna, nobody's just gonna be able to to dose out that small amount and take that. Or you have other brands where it's twelve milligrams in a sixteen ounce can, but it's a standard pop top lid, and the marketing around it is focused on, you know, it's kind of a wink and a nod that we can put this much in an individual can. So I think some of that needs to get shaken out in the industry and define serving size. Now there are other brands. So a few hemp drive brands where they've started playing with hemp-derived wine or hemp-infused wine products, and they're serving it in a wine bottle and it is a resealable cap and they have the hash marks for dosing, or sometimes they'll be provided with a measuring cup that'll go along with it so you can accurately dose it. I think there's nothing wrong with that type of use, but it just come, continues to come down to building that consumer base of education so they understand what how much thc is in the product how does that affect them and then as consumers continue to build that base knowledge and that becomes more commonplace i think that opens up more opportunities for other package varieties and then also as the industry gets better at standardization and actually hitting our numbers the industry has plenty of issues of it'll stay five milligrams on the can and it might be anywhere between two and eight at times and so i think that's something that we all need to get better about it is improving more testing more transparency, better emulsions. This is all things that the industry is starting to work through. And I think as we get more brands into the space, as we get more of these products being made and sold, that's just going to continue to accelerate the advancement of the technology and make these better products for consumers.
1: Now, that was a great point about draft, which again, if you can't tell, I really don't drink alcohol. I'm like, oh yeah, people will have draft beer. Of course that makes sense though, in the context of that might be a little bit more questionable because you really can't accurately dose someone and also communicate the product that you are ultimately selling to someone on that though, going into testing, is there any regulation around like testing after every batch of product you're making? Is anybody like overseeing that from a government perspective or is it just kind of like, yeah, make sure you have a COA. And as long as the COA is, I mean, and I say that knowing even in our market, there's no real direction. As long as you have a COA within like a year of the product, it qualifies. If I see something two years old, I have questions, but very rarely am I seeing a new COA every quarter or every month, depending on when a new batch is made, essentially. And so I'm just curious, when you're in control of manufacturing these products, is there a requirement by the government legally to prove that it's consistent based on the batches that you're doing?
0: Yep. In Minnesota, we're required to test every single batch that we produce and do a potency test. People will often refer to Minnesota as the Wild West right now, and that's not entirely true. We have pretty stringent labeling requirements and testing requirements around that. I think what happens with the adult use bill and the creation of an office of cannabis management is we have enforcement around that Mm. doesn't currently exist. But we as a beverage manufacturer, we frequently test every single product we make for a variety of things, be that contamination issues, making sure that we don't have any additional yeast in the product. It's not going to spoil on shelf, not going to have other issues. So adding a potency test for us makes a lot of sense. And we think people should be doing it for every single batch produced, especially in the beverage industry, because there are so many more variables in a beverage than there are in a tincture or some of these other more concentrated options.
1: Yes, I agree. It should be done, but it goes back to your point of, are people actually regulating it? So getting into the legislation side of it, I agree with you. You don't want to ever get too overly excited when you know it passes the House and I feel like everybody goes, oh my God, it's going to come. It's like, well, still so supposed to pass the Senate and then it has to go to the floor. And it's a much longer drawn out process than the headline that you're reading. But not necessarily how you think the bill is going to end up, but should the bill pass, is it going to help your business? Is it going to hurt your business? I saw some news articles when I was interviewing Jason Trassic around some of the hemp operators were not happy about this this bill coming through. and And just again, personally speaking hemp really has thrown a wrench in what I used to perceive as like legalization, because in some regards, I'm sure you would agree. We already have legalization. I don't need you to go legalize marijuana because I can already get you products that can get you high legally based on the way that the law and the regulations are written. So does this legislation help? Does it hurt? Is it going to make it more complicated? I mean, I'm sure on the regulation enforcement side, it's going to be helpful if that kind of what it's outlining. But I know that the bill probably has a lot of other details in it that, you know, to us, we might not be aware of, but to you as an operator, I'm just curious how it's going to impact your business.
0: The bill's primary focus is the adult use cannabis side of it. That's the bulk of the language. There's relatively small changes to the hemp industry, specifically around adding licensing, adding taxes, some additional regulation around manufacturing that I think will help standardize the industry. But largely, we should be able to continue to operate as we've been operating. It shouldn't have a huge impact on our business. And I think more importantly in the bill in Minnesota and why we are so strongly in support of the bill is it really does come with a lot of social equity measures that are really important for the state. And it comes with expungements and it comes with incentives to support the creation of cannabis businesses in communities most negatively impacted by cannabis's prohibition. And I think what folks on the hemp side of things need to remember is this was never going to be, we were never going to be allowed to do whatever we wanted with no regulation or no taxes for very long. That just wasn't going to happen. The good thing is the authors of the bill and the legislators have been incredibly supportive of the hemp industry in Minnesota, have seen What it's done for the industry has seen how it's helped destigmatize cannabis and are supportive of continuing to allow the hemp businesses to operate mostly as we've been operating with a few tweaks on it. And one of the great things about the hemp side of the business in Minnesota is this is a way for folks to get into the cannabis industry with a much lower barrier to entry. Much like any other state, the cost of operating and opening up a cannabis business, we'll see what the final legislation looks like. But my guess, it'll be millions of dollars to comply with most of the regulations associated with cannabis. For some reason, and this is what's so absurd when you have a thriving hemp industry, for some reason, we're still treating marijuana as if it's plutonium. Why? It does not make sense to me. And I think that's where hemp is a great example of it's not dangerous. We don't need to treat it that way. Here's a cannabis business that's been operating in a cannabis market that's been operating safely. And it's also just an opportunity that if you're going to treat Marijuana like it's plutonium and it's this extremely dangerous thing, which it's not. Here's a way for people to get into the cannabis industry with a lower barrier to entry. And, you know, that's being seen through craft breweries, right? We have hundreds of craft breweries producing these products and they were able to use their existing investments and infrastructure to be able to do that. We've certainly hired a lot more staff and team members and we've seen a lot of growth from it and continue to be able to invest and grow our business. And we don't have millions of dollars in funding. We're a small bootstrapped business in Minneapolis. And it's been really beneficial for us.
1: Yeah. I always love to play devil's advocate. I just can't help but like, I get it. Like pushing for legalization, and obviously, everything you said about social equity and just like accessibility for others to get involved in the industry and just like taking care of the heinous amounts of people who are being incarcerated and getting caught by law enforcement. It's like, it's just ridiculous. Right. So I understand like when you're going for legalization, it's helping clean out some of that stuff. But to me, it just still doesn't reconcile why anybody would want to go in for millions of dollars into the regulated marijuana market. When I could go sell you, obviously knowing I can't sell you concentrates, I can't sell you flour, but I can go sell you cannabis beverages and you can have a good time and you can enjoy it and you can go get it from your local brewery with your friends during happy hour. So I guess that's where I come from looking at it like, huh, I don't know. And to your point, Yes, we all know there's an expiration. Maybe it's not to cease the whole operation, but there's going to come regulations. There's going to be adjustments in the program. But it just, to me, when I see legalization efforts like that, I'm always curious, like what the impact's going to have on a hemp side of the equation. And knowing that y'all have a very robust application of the hemp industry, I'm just very cautious for what that's going to do ultimately because- to me, THC is THC. So whether it's over here mm-hmm. or it's over there, someone's going to want to come and say, Hey, it should all be regulated the same way. Certainly getting into low versus high THC. I get it. There's the dispensary model, similar to like liquor store versus convenience store. We too in Texas cannot buy liquor at our groceries and our Walgreens and things like that. But again, nobody's nobody's really implemented that. And y'all being the state that has the most robust beverage program from a hemp side- I'm really eager to see where legalization ends up for you guys, is all I have to say. So with that, any final thoughts? What's next for trail magic? You know, you're working on a new flavor, just working on helping. And maybe you're pausing, waiting to see what happens in legislation before you do anything more drastic. But I'm just I always love to end on a positive note. So whatever that means to you.
0: No, we're continuing to grow. We've got most three milligram mimosa coming out in June. We've got a 12-pack variety pack that'll be rolling out to markets. So In Minnesota, we have a 50 milligram per package limit. So our variety pack of five and three milligrams comes out to 48 milligrams. So again, working with Inside the Bounds and we're working on expanding distribution. We're really excited. We're launching in New York in a couple of months. Here, you'll start seeing products in New York pop up in mid-June. And we're continuing to grow both the Trail Magic side of the business, but also our alcohol side of the business. We're building a brand new production facility across the street this summer that'll support um, both businesses and allow us to continue to grow and expand. And we're full we'll steam ahead. We'll adapt. We're in the cannabis industry. We'll adapt to whatever the regulation needs to be, but trail magic's not going anywhere.
1: Amazing. Glad to hear Thanks for sharing so candidly and definitely encourage people to check out Trail Magic. And amazing that you'll be distributed soon in other states. So thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
0: Thanks so much for having us on.
1: Appreciate it. Love this episode of To Be Blunt. Be sure to visit slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshaidatarabi.